Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Do you think that your primary school is racist? Probably not. Most parents and carers would probably say that their schools are spaces that work hard to be inclusive. But new research from Monash University has uncovered bias in our schools that's troubling. Hannah Yarrod is a psychologist and PhD student who's the lead author of this research. She's joined by author Maxine Beneva-Clark, who has a range of picture books for children. Ladies, welcome to you both. Thank you. Hi. Thank you. Hannah, can we start with you? Um, What is the difference between racism and racial bias? Sure. I mean, that's a really great question and one that I think is quite complicated to sort of unpack. It's useful to think about these things as all being forms of of racism that manifest in um, different ways and they operate at different levels. So um, things like um, thinking about it as systemic and institutional uh, levels of racism, which um, look at the different hierarchies, the racial hierarchies um, that advantage some and disadvantage others. And then that's sort of that zooming out and looking at it more broadly about how society operates as opposed to those individual one-on-one interactions. So then we have that, I guess, interpersonal racism. So that zooming back in again and looking more closely at those one-on-one interactions. And then we have also internalised racism and all of those things. So they all have really harmful impacts on uh, health and mental health of marginalised people and marginalised students and young people. And they create barriers to accessing different services and different opportunities. So, yeah, so, I mean, you can take it down and unpack all of that further, but that's kind of like a broad overview, I guess. So your research found that there was elements of racial bias in school. So if we're talking practical terms, what does that mean? Is it is it something about the way that classrooms are set up? Is it about the way they teach about issues? As I mentioned in the introduction, I think most parents would say, look, we have Harmony Day. We have, um, we know that they talk about our Indigenous history in classes. Um, What does it look like on a practical level um, from your research? Yeah, so the research study was, it was a review, so it sort of explored what we currently know, so that means it pulled together all the existing research in Australian primary schools and sort of looked at the common themes. And, And the first thing we found was there wasn't a huge amount of research in this space. And it was, if we think back to those different types of racism, the systemic, interpersonal and, and internalised, it was most of the research was focused on that interpersonal sort of style of racism. Um, and so, you know, of most of it was focused, yeah, on that interpersonal sort of stuff. Um, and some of it's definitely that overt racism. So that could be racial slurs um, being said from student to student, some students, for example, telling other students to go back to where they come from, those kind of, that kind of narrative coming out. Um, some of it being curriculum based and coming from schools and teachers. So especially related to those colour evasive sort of approaches and that silencing of racism and and really privileging as well whiteness in the classroom and and making whiteness the norm in the classroom for which everything else becomes the other. Um, And the other thing was that there appeared to be a real mismatch 
between what students want and what they need in terms of discussions and sort of um, the support that they're receiving to actually have those conversations. Maxine, what's it been like for your kids at school? Um, you know, I feel like, um, you know, the first thing to observe probably is that a lot of the Australian teaching workforce is is white, you know, a lot of teachers are Anglo-Australian. And so I think, you know, children are like sponges um, and it's not necessarily, I mean, there is obviously overt racism in Australian classes, but I mean, just starting from the very fact that the person you sit your child in front of every day looks different to them. And if nobody else who looks like them is brought into the classroom, I think it starts with that. Um, and I think, you know, there's something to be said for that kind of, you know, looking at the cu curriculum, looking at the books that kids are reading. You know, I know certainly, um, you know, with my kids, they we live in a very diverse area in West Melbourne. They, they're in the classroom with kids from all different kinds of backgrounds, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the curriculum is not, it does not hold some form of racism. And I guess for me, an example for me would have been, you know, recently we had Anzac Day, the school put on a, a beautiful assembly, you know, to com commemorate uh, family members of kids who fought in wars and things like that. But, you know, I guess my question was, well, what about Indigenous soldiers? And, you know, there's a really important narrative there in that actually, being conscripted into the armed forces or, or voluntarily, you know, entering the armed forces was actually a way for Aboriginal soldiers to experience equality for the first time, ironically, in these horrific circumstances. You know, everyone wore the same uniform, everyone got the same rations, you know, there wasn't that divide. And then when they returned home, of course, that completely disappeared and they went back to having almost no rights. And so just this idea that, you know, how could you have this this ceremony that doesn't include that narrative. So it's not necessarily overt, but everything we teach and everything we don't teach is still sending a particular message about who is important and whose stories are important. Hannah, is part of the problem that different schools, different primary schools in states, territories, but even within that, can actually interpret how they want to do something like Anzac Day. Um, I imagine there would be some schools, or at least I would hope there were some schools, Maxine, that include that Indigenous history in any commemorations of Anzac Day. But, um, Hannah, is that part of the problem, that how schools tackle this kind of thing in terms of the curriculum and being more inclusive ultimately is down to the principal and the teachers? Uh, yeah, that would definitely be part of the problem and, and probably not having really strong sort of anti-racist policies in place um, that sort of filter down into schools. And I think when left, I guess, to be able to um, develop these, um, the ways of doing these things is, is left to schools, often it falls on these sort of race-neutral approaches. So um, I think like you mentioned as well, Harmony Day Before, um, and sort of that those days focus on that inclusion, which, you know, on the surface seems really great. And most people might wonder, you know, what's wrong with focusing on those positive things about inclusion and diversity and coming together. And those things sound really nice in theory, but, um, you know, we need to ask ourselves who those 
things benefit? Who are they nice for? Does it benefit black and brown students to talk about diversity and inclusion and ignore sort of experiences of racism inside and outside the classroom? Um, and days like Harmony Day um, are actually supposed to be called or what are called around the rest of the world is the UN's International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And the choice of language is really important because we're sort of we're shifting it to be that race neutral approach and away from those really uh, anti-racist um, approaches that really address the needs of students and that are more culturally responsive. Maxine, a lot of your work with your picture books is about um, representation, showing kids images that are not white <laughs> and, and images of, of their own communities. Um, is that sort of key to all of this for you, uh, representation, not only in the teachers that are teaching our kids, but also in the materials they use when they teach them? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're a teacher with a diverse class, I think thinking about the needs of that class um, as opposed to kind of standardised teaching. I mean, obviously there is a curriculum that you need to follow, but within that curriculum there is a lot of space to present diverse images. And I think in my work, you know, I think a lot about, you know, we do kids, you know, obviously you don't want to be traumatising any child, but we do kids a massive disservice when we essentially are sugarcoating everything. And I think, you know, an, an example is, is, you know, as Hannah said, Harmony Day. And, you know, that day actually commemorates a, a massacre in South Africa. You know, on that particular day, there was a massive anti-apartheid march, about 8,000 people marched through the streets and the um, apartheid police force opened fire and killed 69 people. And obviously you wouldn't want to open with that, but to, to explain Harmony Day by saying, look, you know, this tragic event happened that shouldn't have happened because of racism and because, you know, people didn't like people who were different from them. And actually that's why we have this day so that we're actually all reminded, you know, where racism can lead and that, you know, we all need to try and get along together to prevent something like this happening again. It's actually a much more effective way than just kind of saying, you know, everybody wear a costume from a different country and we'll eat nice food. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I think... Yeah. You know, that's the thing. It's finding the language to actually tell children the truth without, you know, leaving a trauma. And Hannah, I believe in your research, you found that children want these conversations. It's just perhaps misguided on the parts of educators and parents that they feel like they can't address the darkness of this topic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, part of what we found was that children, um, when given the space to do so, were able to have really in-depth conversations about racial issues and they really needed those conversations. Um, I think there's this sort of um, misunderstanding with a lot of teachers and a lot of parents that children don't see race and they don't see colour and they're too young to have these conversations. But as Maxine said, you know, there are there are age appropriate ways to have these conversations using, you know, wonderful books like Maxine's books and those kind of things um, are really great ways to have those conversations. And it actually helps with their social cognitive development. They children enter school at a really crucial time in their development um, and schools are really strong racial ethnic socialization spaces so they're a space where kids learn positive and negative messages about race so 
you know, um, teachers can help children navigate this space um, rather than avoiding it. And it also means that any negative views that may potentially um, develop in childhood um, don't go unchecked and continue on into adulthood. And it's also really important for marginalised kids to give them a space to process um, sort of any experiences that they have with racism. So it's really, really helps to create um, more well-rounded children. Maxine, in one of your books, um, one of your most recent picture books, you dealt with a really tough topic and that was the Black Lives Matter um, protests around the world and what it, it meant generally. How did you handle that in your picture book for children? I, mean, I think I was quite conscious of creating a book that would lead to different discussions for different ages. Um, so the book's called When We Say Black Lives Matter and it's a picture book. And I, I suppose as a child, the more you know about the Black Lives Matter movements, the more questions you're going to ask after reading that book. Um, you know, it's a text that really, I suppose, you know, I was thinking about the fact that after the death of George Floyd, George Floyd, all kids were watching Black Lives Matter protests around the world. It was during COVID, so we kind of had the news on 24-7. And just thinking of trying to contextualise what do those words mean? What do we mean when we say Black Lives Matter? Um, and, yeah, I suppose I think a lot about well, hopefully making something a joyous experience for kids as well, whether that means... Um, you know, giving them space to think about what they think Black Lives Matter means, whether it means looking at colours and illustrations and making things, you know, tactile and beautiful and things like that. And, yeah, for me it's all about um, contextualising things and thinking about, okay, well, I want to have this discussion. How do I have it in a way that is positive and that every child can participate in, even though obviously every kid is coming to it with a completely different background or experience? I think one of the things I've observed just anecdotally with my children is that particularly in early learning um, centres, they've managed to really embrace the incredible beauty and wisdom in Indigenous First Nation cultures in Australia in a way I don't think happened when I was a kid, not in preschool and certainly not in primary school. And while they don't go into the racism that has been endemic since the very beginning, um, it feels, I, I kind of connect that with your book, Maxine, because it was such a celebration of culture. Um, do you feel that that is... Um, that is a potential way in to start with our youngest kids in celebrating this incredible culture in our own country but other cultures that come to our country and then from that place of respect and appreciation move into uh, but these people have been treated very badly and are still being treated badly today. Um, I, I see that definitely the curriculum is changing and I think, you know, a beautiful thing with both of my kids, I have a 10-year-old and a 15-year-old, is that they study a lot more Indigenous history, Indigenous personalities. You know, when I was growing up, you know, in a primary school in Australia 30 years ago, you weren't taught, you know, you started with Captain Cook. You know, that was where you started and anything else was incidental. So I agree. I think that that's a, a, a fantastic development. I do think there's a danger in the approach where, it's kind of let's celebrate other cultures and then leave them over there and, and move on to the maths lesson. I think it's really mm. important to say racism exists and it's not okay 
And if you see it, you need to do something about it. And and kids have such a, a sophisticated concept of fairness. You know, they will totally, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, obviously for, for a two-year-old or a three-year-old going through, you know, the history of the Holocaust or Indigenous Australia or slavery or anything like that is very complicated. <laughs> but, but, you know, to say you need to treat people fairly and people look different from who look different from you, you know, are still to be respected. Um, I think that that's something you tell kids from birth, yeah. And, Hannah, one of the things you point out in your work is that actually being colourblind is problematic, hugely problematic. Um, you've touched on this before in this conversation. Could you just tell us a bit more about what what's wrong with teachers saying they're colourblind, that they don't see the difference between their children in their classes? Yes, yes. Um, this is a really great question. Um, I guess this colour blindness or colour evasiveness is sort of a less obvious form of racism and it refers to this idea that denying or distorting or minimising discussions around racial differences is more desirable than drawing attention to them. So that's saying things like I don't see race or I don't see colour or everybody's equal, those kind of things. And these um, attempts to highlight sameness rather than difference are beautiful in theory, but they're just not the reality for marginalised people or marginalised students. And they miss that, uh, I guess, opportunity to examine the social significance of that difference. So, for example, it misses the opportunity to examine um, students' experiences of racism. And it really, um, I guess, as well, kind of defies logic in that we do see people's race and colour. Children notice these things um, from the time that they're born and it ends up creating almost a stigma associated with race. It implies that there's something wrong with seeing somebody's race and we're effectively sending a message to students that, you know, when we say we don't see the race, that there's a problem with that. And there's not a problem with noticing race. It's what we do um, when we notice race as the problem. And these sort of colour evasive approaches don't really combat the issue. Um, the intent might be good, but if we don't see people's race, then we can't see people's or students' experiences of racism. And that's really invalidating. And it, it means that we can't really combat racism in the classroom. And, and you know, it's a huge problem because although these colour evasive approaches are are well intended, they end up actually being counterproductive and contributing to that cycle of racial injustice in the classroom through this almost pervasive silence. Because one thing that you can't ignore, I know know it's a complex story, but um, when we talk about implicit bias that you're not even aware of so you can be a teacher saying hey all my kids are equal but if you step back and look with a perspective on the class then you notice oh hold on a second Um, I'm not I'm I'm sending the indigenous kid out for detention more than the white kid or whatever but they if they think they're colorblind they can't they can't even see their well by its nature we don't see our own implicit bias so it's that's problematic isn't it yeah and I think um the one thing as well that's really important because there's a lot of sort of talk around unconscious bias and whether or not some of these terms are problematic um and I think one of the really important things is for people to know that when researchers and and psychologists and things say talk about implicit bias they're not or unconscious bias they're not saying it's unconscious because 
we can't draw attention to them. It's it's usually that we haven't or that we refuse to draw attention to it. So we still can very much, um, you know, sort of self-reflect and understand the views that we have as well. Maxine, if you had to leave parents with one tip on how they can help their children grow up to be good citizens, non-racist citizens, um, and children just as they are to help them with this topic, what, what would you say parents can do? I mean, I guess my advice is that, you know, kids are like sponges and so they soak in everything that you do and that that can be, you know, from the books that you're giving them to read, from the television shows that they're watching, movies you're taking them to, people that you have in your house. You know, if you're an Anglo-Australian and you've never had anyone non-white into your house, I mean, I'm not saying that people should, like, go out and make friends with people of colour so their kids aren't ready. (laughs) (laughs) You know, There'll be all these people in cafes being accosted by white parents. <laughs> Maxine said we should be friends. <laughs> but you, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, I always think about that parent who considers themselves anti-racist, who somehow ends up with a 16-year-old racist kid in their house, you know, and thinks, how did this happen? And it's, you know, it's absolutely everything. It's, you know, take them to see a movie and they get there and it happens to be an African movie, you know, because why not? Why wouldn't you do that? Um, And so, you know, I think that you have to constantly be conscious about what your circle is, what you can provide your kid and, you know, outsource if you have to. You know, there are incredible um, resources in terms of books, in terms of, you know, different festivals you can go to and things like that. And I do think um, talking to your kids' teachers you know, it doesn't matter if you're the white parent saying to your, your your kids' teachers, you know, what are you doing about Aboriginal history? And, you know, here you go. Here are some books that I thought you could have lying around in the classroom. I think the responsibility really is on us all um, to kind of make those moves and, and hopefully push things forward. Hannah, you have um, lots of great advice in your work on what teachers can do. I won't go into all of it because we'll put links to your research in the notes of this episode. But if you had one thing that you could ask teachers to do, what would that be? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the things that, you know, parents can do, as Maxine has brilliantly outlined, uh, are similar things that teachers can do. Um, I think it really starts, though, as well with understanding how important having these discussions is and sitting with the discomfort of those discussions and really leaning into that and making sure that we are having those open, honest and age-appropriate conversations, looking at the classroom as well, um, which Maxine pointed out earlier and looking at, um, you know, are the materials in my classroom you know, culturally responsive to the diverse students that I have? Um, are the books, are the, you know, the resources, are we using resources from people with a lived experience when we're teaching, for example, about First Nations history and all of those kind of things? So really focusing on that, I think, is really important. Hannah, Maxine, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us on. That's Hannah Yarrod, psychologist and PhD student at Monash University and author Maxine Beneva-Clark. There'll be links to Hannah's research in the notes of this episode and links as well to Maxine's books. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, 
email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.